So let's start here. I want to start with a quote from your book that I really, really like. So I just love this quote. Love her or hate her. Here was a woman who worked her entire life to conform to society's expectations of how likable she needed to be in order to be accepted, only to lose to a clown in the end. And you're talking about Hillary. I just think that's one of the one of the sweetest, wisest things anyone's ever said about Hillary. Yeah, no, seriously. And then you say this, but in the aftermath of that traumatizing election, something cool happened. Women everywhere stopped giving a shit about being likable. I'd like you to yeah. expand on that for me a little bit. Uh, I, I, I do think that the uh, tenor of that election and the outcome did just kind of uh, open the floodgate to women perhaps feeling more emboldened to put it all out there. You know, the the Me Too movement coming off like the backs of that time, it, it feels sh- somewhat uh, connected. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I think kind of when you're backed up against the wall, you're a little more fearless than normally. And I, do, I do think that in like that 2017 climate. It doesn't feel like it was long ago, but I guess it was six years ago. I, I think it emboldened um, women. Yeah. It's crazy to think it was that long ago. It feels like it feels like yesterday, but it also feels like a really long time ago, too, in a certain way. Yeah. It feels like we've aged a lot as a culture since then. We have. We've had a pandemic. We've yeah. had a, a 10 to 2. <laughs> you know, yeah, we've aged a lot. Yeah, exactly. All right, now remind me, you did, I, I hope I'm getting the order of this right, you did a show called Soft Focus for Comedy Central's Adult Swim, and then you did Indefensible uh, for no, Sundance? For, um, uh, so Soft Focus was for Adult Swim, which is a separate network than Comedy Central. Oh, okay. Um, it's the nighttime of Cartoon Network. It's kind of, they're all crazy. But yeah, I did a show called, I, I was, I worked behind the scenes of The Daily Show, that which was on Comedy Central and then I had my own show after Trump became president on Adult Swim called Self Focus that ran for we did two specials and then we were about to do a third and then the pandemic happened right when we entered pre-production and so that got sidelined and then the network kind of restructured and the the people that really brought me in and championed the show left and then the show kind of just didn't get picked up which I think happens a lot to right. a lot of people in this industry right. with all the kind of uh, changing in uh, uh, executives and then um, I uh, got an opportunity to work on a show with uh, AMC Plus and that's indefensible and we, we shot two seasons of that two seasons so how many shows? Well, it's is... technically one season, but yeah. in two different <laughs> years. Okay. <laughs> Which is yeah, I'm no comment on that. Okay. <laughs> All right. And so, are there? Do you have projects lined up, or is the book is coming out? Are you going to see what happens after that? The book is coming out. I have a couple things I'm developing, uh, but I'm not scheduled to shoot anything at the moment. Yeah. Okay. And who would you? Who was your biggest get? Do you think on those interview shows that you did? Um, I'm I mean, on it, I think uh, Gloria Allred. I would have to say, um, 
probably because I can't believe. I mean, she sat down on on uh, Indefensible. She sat down with me on Indefensible. That's a uh, easier show to get people to sit down with you because it's like true crime adjacent. It's not comedy. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I would say I, I didn't think we were going to get Gloria Allred, and we did. Uh huh. Then again, she is makes herself very available to public appearances. Right. <laughs> so maybe she wasn't the biggest get. John McAfee, on my uh, self-focus, I was kind of shocked that he said that. I was shocked, too, and I'm shocked at the footage you got. And I'm wondering how you prepare yeah. for something like that. You, I mean, it seems like you sit there with so, you're so calm. It's, but, I mean, you must, you must role play and prepare like crazy to go on there and be so calm with a lunatic like him. No, I was probably foolishly calm with him. I didn't know that he, he had five gunmen, like armed guards. <laughs> I should say armed guards, not gunmen, but whatever. Um, he had five guys with guns, kind of one of them at one point was like pointed at me. Right. Um, I think because I'm not around guns a lot, they don't, it just doesn't even register that they're real. Huh. Um, and I also thought, you know, he's running for president at the time that I sat down with him, so I didn't think he was going to do anything too crazy because he was running for president. So I wasn't totally scared. Right. Um, but yeah, I didn't prepare. I mean, we we prepared in the sense that there were questions that I had written in advance um, that I knew I was going to ask him. But then there's a lot of improv involved too. Right. Um, and do you count? But I also you... I oh sorry I've been a producer for three years behind the scenes uh, on like the Daily Show, so I, I kind of have that experience under my belt in terms of like knowing what to expect or what we need to get for it to be a good piece. Yeah. So what's your favorite memory of being a producer at The Daily Show? Do you have some high points there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember one of the first pieces I did that I think we really hit a home run. It was was Sam B. It was my first rural piece and it was about women in the military and there was a ban on women serving on the front line. And I thought of a civil rights issue. I pitched it to my team. They were like, well, it kind of maybe makes sense, but maybe it, maybe you're right. You, you and Sam can go make that piece. And Sam agreed with me. And then in the middle of production, Leon Panetta actually lifted the ban on women in combat. Uh -huh. um, and so the story changed from we're advocating for these people to, oh, shit, this... We, we have this is now women can serve on the front line right and the piece um it just really articulated that the front lines are all of afghanistan and when you have these retrograde laws in the military it makes everybody less safe and when you have women not able to serve on the front lines they're treated as second-class citizens and that the definition of war is not what it was 50 years ago and it was and then it was also funny and it was just a really funny cool piece and I think John John shook my hand after that piece and I just remember feeling so proud yeah. and feeling like we had made a type of comedy that really isn't seen a lot in political comedy yeah. um, and it was like this kind of feminist segment and I think it came out before like Schumer show or around that time like, prior to that there wasn't a lot of like feminist comedy on Comedy Central so I was really proud of um, it it's called Military Brohesian Starring Sandy, and I was a producer on it. A lot of those clips that they took down, but if you can find that one, it's a, it's, it's a great segment. Okay. And do you know the story behind getting Giuliani to appear in the Borat movie? 
I do. But and I... You're great in the book about how what stupid questions journalists ask you. What kind of questions should journalists be asking comics more? That's so funny. I didn't even think about the consequences of writing about that on future interviews. <laughs> I think it's not as much as it used to be. And that's actually not true because I did that interview with Isaac Chotner and he, in his defense, prepped me that it was going to be about Louie and I was promoting season or episode two of Self Focus. So I was, I was like, I'll do anything in the New Yorker. Right, right. Um, I think, uh, I think when you're, as a journalist, when you're asking questions and you're not, you're not like a comedy journalist, um, or like you're not like a, you're not like messing with the form. If you're just straight asking questions, um, just ask yourself, would I ask a guy the same question I'm asking this female performer or vice versa or whatever? Yeah. I think that that always will keep you in check. Yeah. Um, and that, there's that wonderful passage in your book where you have you ask the questions that you've been asked to to these male comics. Were there was there anything you left on the cutting room floor in that passage? I just found that so hilarious. No, there's a well, a couple things. I do feel bad for Patton and Jim uh, Gaffigan because both of their interviews were via email. So uh -huh. I, I think like I and I say that in the interview like I, I know Jim felt a little stiffer than he is because he just answered my questions via email and then um, I had actually uh, I used to work with uh, Norm McDonald on uh, Roseanne which became the Connors and Norm Norm was going to I wanted to interview him as well and I think I asked him and he's like I'm a little busy follow up with me in a month and then he died oh, oh. so it's heartbreaking but the only kind of funny thing is thinking about Norm knowing that he was going to die <laughs> and like telling me to reach out again in a month <laughs> knowing he was going to die before that um, yeah would you do anything different or ask any different questions today if you got to do that um, sequence over again? I mean, I just, I, I recorded that last year, so. Yeah. No, I mean, it would have been fun to film it if they had let me. Yeah. But I was, it was nerve-wracking because these are all guys that I love and admire and I'm asking them such silly questions, but they got it. And I think, I hope that, you know, the, the um, I recorded the, uh, conversations that we had and I think I can't tell if the written form captures how funny they were um, and had like that discomfort that is like so signature to those videos that even when you're talking to people who know what you're doing there were just these funny moments like oh. I remember when I asked John about Louis like he just he had like a guttural laugh yeah and I, I don't I mean you can't capture that up, like in a, in a written interview well, I laughed out loud during most of it, and I could I could really tell that Stuart himself was really was really laughing too. Um, okay. What do you think? What do you think most people get wrong about the craft of comedy? Um. Okay, I think. I mean, I think in all entertainment, the editors and the director but really like editors and producers I think are so unsung and they're so instrumental to making comedy work particularly in um, the type of comedy that I love to do 
the Borat style comedy. It really is a, a team effort. There's so much that goes into making these things from like casting the people that you end up talking to in unscripted ways. Like it's very, um, it is very scripted, the unscripted comedy stuff, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Well, I feel like Borat sort of he's he's made that very clear. He's he, I mean he's spoke- oh, Sasha's definitely made that clear. But yeah. I think like um, I'm just trying to think like in terms of I mean editors I just think are such so such unsung heroes in in all entertainment, particularly comedy because comedy really is like this rhythm. I remember like I I made videos um, online. I've been doing it for years and. I worked for Vice and that Geo as well, and I have some content online that just kind of falls flat because the other, just because the edit, like it got lost in translation or whatever. And I think that one thing in terms of comedic videos is that editing is so critical in it, in the comedy working. Yeah, you want to give a shout out to some name editors that you think are really talented? Adam Epstein, any of the guys who edit those SNL digital shorts. Um, John Philpot, who edited Soft Focus. Yeah. Oh, um, Eric Naternicola, he edits a lot for Nathan. I'm afraid to get shouts out because I want to keep working with these yes. people and they're already so busy. Yes. <laughs> they're so busy because they're like the best in the industry. Um, do you have a favorite routine that hasn't gotten laughs yet that you keep polishing? Um, I stepped away from stand-up for just a minute with the baby, yeah. so I have to go back into doing that and not trying to kind of figure out what I have to say in terms of stand-up. Um, but I do have all this content that I kind of posted online that uh, I'm just uh, working with someone right now who's helping me put stuff on TikTok, which is like the silliest sentence, but I just can't go on TikTok. So I have this person who... Um, have been putting she put one video on TikTok two days ago and uh, it already got a million views oh my god so I do have a lot of content out there that I think people just haven't seen because I've just been doing stuff kind of under the radar so we're trying to get stuff out there a little bit more and you don't want to give that Gen Z it's called Gen Z no 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 for Gen Z okay Um, you want to give the name I'm trying to appeal to Gen Z okay I don't really know with some older content that we're putting out now but you you don't want to share that TikTok handle? Oh, it's my name. Oh, it's your name. Okay, good. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, do you want to name three comedy records that were really important to you growing up? Comedy. I, I didn't really listen to comedy records, but I loved like In Living Color. I loved The State. Um, when I was little, I I mean SNL, Edward Gorey, which. People don't traditionally associate with comedy, but I always thought he was like, the funniest. Uh, love, always loved Jimmy Garofalo, Sarah Silverman, John Rivers. I saw Janine Garofalo like three years ago. She yeah, was, she's the best. She was hilarious. Yeah. Um, what do you do to psych yourself up before you go on stage? Um, I don't really have rituals uh when i was doing i did edinburgh like for the full month yeah and so um i would before those shows just kind of like do a couple push-ups or something just try to just kind of yeah get 
energy up, maybe have like coffee, but nothing like, uh, not really OCD about my process. I probably should be. Um, the cool thing I think about performing and something that I'll, that I always appreciated because I never, I was never like a performer, if that makes sense. And the way I'm saying it probably isn't captured via writing, but more of a writer than a performer. Uh-huh. So then when you do stand up, you create your own persona and I could just be me. So I didn't feel like I needed to like put on airs or have a ritual to get into character because I was, I am the character that is on stage talking. Right. Um, do you want to tell the story of the book, how you came about to get the contract and how you went about doing it? I know you have, I know you got to share it with your mom. Yeah. Um, I uh, had tweeted about Brock, so it was during the RNC and, um, sorry, that's my dog. Yeah. Uh, I tweeted a joke, like a breaking news tweet about Brock Turner speaking at the RNC because I just read that the McCloskey's, I don't know if that's their name, but that couple that pointed guns at protesters were actually speaking at the RNC. And I'm like, this is crazy. So I tweeted that Brock Turner, the kid who, uh, uh, the Stanford rapist, I don't know if that's problematic, but however you want to call him. I tweeted that he was speaking at the RNC. And I also tweeted that the bat who gave the world COVID was speaking at the RNC. Like, I, I clearly was joking. <laughs> and yet the Brock Turner tweet went viral, and then people were commenting on it. There was, like, a news article about, like, Stanford professor does not find this tweet funny because people thought it was real. <laughs> and uh, then people online got mad at me, and they, were, they said how I was re-traumatizing the victim of Brock Turner. Uh, and then her... Lit agent reached out and was like, "Thank you for getting his name trending. Book is out now. You're going to help with sales." It was like this whole stew of insanity. And the lit agent reached out and he said, "You know, if you write up a couple pages, I think we can sell a book." And that person is Robert Gunsler, and he's awesome. And I just started writing a pitch. It was during I think one of the variants where everything was a little shut down again, so I had a little bit of time. And I put a pitch together and, you know, for like a decade I've been procrastinating and not really able to write a book and it took a pandemic where I was stationary to have that focus to do it. And then we sold it and the book kind of evolved from the original pitch into what it ended up being was a series of essays. And yeah, my mom was like instrumental in the whole process because she's always been trying to get me to write a book and we would have these like walk and talks where she would say, do you remember when that happened? Do you remember you said that? And then I'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I'd put it in the book. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Very cool. Um, yeah. So, um, do you have, like, a favorite moment of where you've been inspired on stage and something's come out that you didn't expect? I started with improv, as I talked about in the book, and I had those moments all the time when I was doing improv. Not so much in stand-up, but, um, yeah, improv, it, it, it really is like a drug. I mean, there's nothing more fun than uh, discovering uh, things in the moment with your friends and doing it on stage with audience members in on the joke, and, yeah, it was so much fun. 
I love how you come out and go, America hates moms. America hates moms. And you actually get people to say it. Yeah. Does that, does that work differently in different cities and different parts of the country? To, uh, I didn't. So that show, I mean, I was so pregnant and I was writing the material on the fly. And I also didn't want to get COVID while pregnant. So I wasn't really working that show out a ton indoors. And I definitely didn't tour it. Um, I was producing uh, what would be the second uh, six episodes of second installment of Indefensible. So I really uh, didn't get to do that show as much as I would have had it been another show at another time and had I not been pregnant. Um, so a lot of those jokes were kind of less polished than uh, what would normally be presented in a set of mine. But to answer your question, I think I... No, I had I had not led an audience in that chant because I think that was the first or second time I had tried that. Because that's just hilarious. I mean, it's just so hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get anyone to sing that along with me when I do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I love your bit about how the abortion jokes are like the unwanted babies of comedy. Thanks. And you go, you're pretty, like, you're pretty candid and you're just really you really dig in there deeply like you're just not going to avoid this and you're just really um i just wonder how does that you know have you have you found yourself having trouble with that material at different places or do you do you find that the confidence really helps that material just surge right on through or i uh the, the miscarriage joke that's in the special what didn't really work in a way that it worked when I wasn't pregnant. I think being pregnant scared people, but that's like my favorite place to play in that kind of discomfort where you're, where you know that what you're saying is correct. I, you know that you are not being offensive because this is a topic that we need to talk about that we're not talking about, but that is simultaneously being legislated. You've done the bit so many times as a non-pregnant person and it has made people laugh. And the only difference is now that is now you are pregnant. And so that was really fun to tell. And it was fun to kind of tease the audience for not laughing. And yeah. That, that, that what, that's what makes stand up feel fresh and fun to me when you're kind of playing with the audience discomfort well right and i feel like that's what that that helps the audience too because we we just are sort of giving ourselves over to you we're we're just like okay she's she's just gonna get us through this or something i mean it just it does feel like <laughs> you know it feels like okay she's she's uh she's let the genie out of the bottle so let's see what she does with it yeah it requires a level of trust right. and i do think that that trust is not necessarily given to women particularly um and so you kind of have to just demand it or not be phased if you don't get it well it's like that um i think steve martin says this in his book he had to figure out like how he was going to take the audience to a place where they would have to understand that he didn't care whether it worked or not that, yeah that he was just going to plow through it and and if he didn't get laughs he was still going to hold character yeah that's yeah I mean, Steve Martin's a genius, and I think that is a thing. It's like audiences are like dogs, right? They can smell fear, and they're easily led. Right. And I think you just have to be, especially when you're doing challenging material, just as unflappable as you can be, and that, that takes time and practice and experience. 
And reflecting on this this material now that you are a mother, are you? Do you have other? Do you have new reflections about it? I, I hope you're going to extend and amplify and keep going with this in this space, right? I mean, I have a Casey Anthony joke that's like the only joke I've written since I had a baby, and it is funny to me, but I'm like afraid if I tell it, like I'll have like CPS fall. <laughs> like, like I can't, like, I'm like, oh, are there things I can't say in jest as a mom because of being a mom in our culture? But I don't know. Like, I, uh, um, I think it is probably having a slightly censoring effect on my stand-up also because I'm exhausted all the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, but I'm, you know, do you, do you feel like now that you're, I mean, you were a mom when you were pregnant, but now that your baby is three months old. I you, wasn't a mom when I was pregnant. No. <laughs> no, I was a pregnant person. Yeah. Um, I'm what just, is a mom? I'm just trying know? to frame this right, but now that your baby is three months old, do you feel like America hates moms more than you expected or less than you expected? or? Oh, I knew what I was getting into, and I, I think it just further solidified it. But I, I, I didn't have any illusions that this would be easy. Um, I, uh, But I, I also, I mean, I, it's still crazy to me, and it just further makes me want to, you know, advocate on behalf of, uh, of, of new moms and moms in general, because it's, it, it's, it's insanely hard, and yeah. the fact that we don't have social safety nets uh, to help people in the way that we should. It, it, I really don't understand how so many people do this because it's, it's insane. Yeah, it is. It's insane. It's insane and it's crazy making. Yeah, and I did get, I don't think I got in trouble for it, but I do think I tweeted something about how I, I think postpartum depression is a diagnosis that while it is, while it does exist, which I think people get upset if you imply that it doesn't exist, which I didn't mean to. But of course it's real, but I also think it's probably overprescribed and I think it's like a convenient label for uh, people to throw at new moms instead of actually look at the system and how it probably exacerbates any pre-existing yeah. depressive symptoms. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, you don't sleep for the first couple months and, uh, is that postpartum depression or is that just society like not giving you paid leave and not, you know, having uh, things in place that make it easier to, to have kids and to uh, raise them without, you know, going broke or going sleep deprived or both? Yeah, I think that's very tricky material. <laughs> that's very tricky, right? But okay. yeah, it is. But then when you're actually like somebody commented, they're like, well, you sounds like you don't even have kids I'm like what <laughs> what oh, but I mean I like I I'm not I so far uh, have been lucky that I haven't had postpartum depression I had a pretty awful uh third trimester my mom passed away um oh, and I was I'm so sorry depleted. I was you know because I think I was so depleted before I gave birth that you know with the baby I just I, I'm so thankful that you got to see me be pregnant and thankful that he's okay and I just I feel lucky to have him yeah um but just not having sleep I mean and it would it makes anyone crazy yeah so yeah and when you have a clinical diagnosis I think it's easy, easier for a lot of people to like be dismissive oh you just have postpartum depression instead of like oh we don't have 
and infrastructure to support you as a society. Right. Right. Um, so let's finish here because I want to let you go take a nap if you're tired. But I love your <laughs> I'm okay. I love yeah. your routine about the glass burqa and about how tough it is being a female in ISIS and um, I just wonder where that where that that is such a genius idea. Where'd that come from? Thank you. That one makes me laugh too. I saw a New York Post headline about this suicide bomber woman. And then they like slut shamed her in the headline. They posted photos of her online. Right. And I just. Right. That was so horrific and horrible, but weirdly funny to me because no one died, I think. I think. Don't quote me actually on that. But she died. But besides her, you know what? Don't quote me. I don't really know the details of it. But um, just the fact that you could literally be a suicide bomber, but if you're a woman, you're still like undermined called the boyfriend's girlfriend or something right like or you know that kind of absurdity the sexism inherent like even with terrorists yeah well um Jenna, thank you so much for spending uh, this time with me I've really enjoyed this chat with you and I admire your work so much thanks for coming on my podcast of course. Um, do you... Oh, it's a podcast. It's not, I was going to say, do you have any questions? Uh, oh, it's a podcast. Okay, I don't know why I thought it was French. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. Uh, it's a podcast. I'm a rock critic, but I have a special interest in comedy, and um, I just... Your book just really was so impressive to me, so good luck with it. I hope I helped break it wide. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tim. Well, take care. Have All a good day. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.